meaningful, what makes our wisdom and our work meaningful. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and while you're turning there, just to kind of catch us up to speed as to where we are in the book, um, because I've had an opportunity to kind of preach through chapter 1 and the beginning part of chapter 2, and so here we are in the middle of chapter 2, and the book of Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon, and it's written at a time where he's at the end of his life, and he's looking over his life, and he's evaluating what he has done throughout his life. He's reflecting on the things that filled up his days. And in chapter 1, verse 3, he asks the question, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, Solomon is asking the question, What is the meaning of life? And Ecclesiastes is the account of how he has tried to answer that question. So far in the book, Solomon has walked us through some pretty significant categories. He's looked at creation. He's looked at human history. He's looked at, he's looked at human ingenuity. He's also looked at human wisdom. And the previous section in chapter 2 talks about how he pursued pleasure with intense passion. Basically, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Solomon set out to create the most pleasurable circumstances imaginable. That if he could please himself 24-7, maybe then I could be happy, and maybe then I can find the meaning of life. But what does he find? Well, in verse 11, it says that he found it all to be vanity, to be striving after the wind, that there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Again, Solomon tried so hard to create the best possible circumstances imaginable, and he came up empty. But he doesn't stop at verse 11. He goes on to verse 12, where he investigates wisdom again, and he essentially is asking the question, what is the point of being wise? Or, point number one in your outline, why be wise? He asks the question, why be wise. So let's look at it. Verse 12, where he says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more to, be gain, more to gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has, eye, has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise and of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon writes that he turns to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. And this is the second time that Solomon has investigated wisdom. We saw in chapter 1 how Solomon already looked at wisdom, looked at madness, and he looked at folly, and he tried to see if wisdom had the answers to life. 
the answer to the meaning of life. And the result we see in verse 13, where it says it's an unhappy business. The end of verse 14, it's vanity and a striving after the wind. Verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. So he's already investigated wisdom, so he's coming at it at a second time, maybe to see if there's something that he missed. And he says, I turned to consider wisdom. I turned to consider madness and folly. And this time he actually lets us know that there is a little bit of gain to be found in wisdom. Verse 13, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. As there is more gain in light than in darkness. Verse 14, the wise person has eyes in his head, meaning that the wise person has eyes to see where he's going, whereas the fool walks in darkness continually fumbling and bumbling his way in and out of trouble throughout his life. In short, Solomon is letting us know that it's better to be wise than to be a fool. That it's, life is going to be better for you if you're wise rather than if you are foolish. You know, it's kind of like staying away from sushi at a truck stop in Nebraska. It's like looking both ways before you cross the road. If you're wise, life tends to go better for you. But there's a problem. Solomon lets us know that the problem is that the same thing happens to both the wise man and the fool. And that's death. The end of verse 14, he says, Yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. The end of verse 16, How the wise dies just like the fool. And so back in verse 15, he asked the question, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? Solomon, here we have the wisest person who ever lived, the richest king who ever lived, the person who wrote the wisest book in all of history, and he realizes that he's going to die just like the derelict in the gutter. And not only that, he says that for the fool and for the wise, there is no enduring remembrance. That eventually all will be forgotten. Both of them will be forgotten. And here, we see Solomon giving us a glimpse of what he's looking for. He's looking for something that transcends this life. He's looking for something that has lasting value, something that is going to last beyond his days. He wants something that has enduring remembrance. He's trying to see if there is anything that transcends this life that has lasting value, something that will not be forgotten. And he lets us know that everything will be forgotten. I mean, we've said it before that if you were to die today, who would be around to remember you? Your friends and your family. But once they're no longer alive, who else will be around to remember you? I mean, I forget what I did last week. So there's no enduring remembrance. In the days to come, all will be forgotten you will be forgotten. 
sure Solomon lets us know that there's some benefit in being wise as opposed to being a fool. But in the end, both the wise man and the fool will die and both the wise man and the fool will be forgotten. And so he asks the question, why have I spent so much time? Why have I put so much effort into being wise? What is the point of all this wisdom if it doesn't rescue me from the same fate as the fool? And so he says in verse 17, I hated life. It was grievous to me. It was vanity, a striving after the wind. So why be wise? So there's nothing to be found in wisdom. So then he turns his attention to his work. He turns his attention to his work and he asks the question, why work? Which is point number two. Why work? Verse 18, it says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair for all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil of striving of his heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I mean, are you seeing how Solomon is writing here? He says, I hated my toil in which I toiled under the sun. Seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. Who knows if he will be wise or a fool. He will be the master of all which I toiled. This also is vanity. And Solomon lets us know how he toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill. I mean, look, and then we, if we look back at chapter 2, look at verse 4 and we see a listing of the things that he's done. Verse 4 says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herd and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers both men and women, and many concubines, the delight delight of the children of men. So I became very great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward in all my toil. Solomon lets us know all the things that he did to amass his great kingdom. And if we had time, we would go back to 1 Kings chapter 4 and chapter 10 that give us more information of all the things that Solomon had gathered for himself. One of the most shocking things in my mind is where it says in chapter 10, verse 14, that Solomon, his, his annual income of gold 
was 666 talents. And you might be asking yourself, well, how much is that? Good you, I'm glad you asked. Because if that was today, Solomon's annual income of just gold, just gold, would be over $1.4 billion. And that's just gold. Later on in that same chapter, it talks about how silver was considered as nothing in the days of Solomon. That Solomon made silver as common as rocks in Jerusalem. That is the wealth that Solomon had gained. Solomon had wealth unlike anything that this world has ever seen or ever will see. But in verse 18, he says, I must leave it to someone who did not work for it. And in verse 19, that someone else will be the master of all the things that I worked for. And not only that, Solomon gives us a little commentary about how he's thinking about this in verse 23, when he says that his work was full of sorrow, his efforts was great, great vexation, and that he spent many sleepless nights worried over the things that he worked for, over the things that will eventually go to someone else. I mean, let's think about our cars for a second, right? A lot of times we get a car because we have a job and we need to get to our job, right? But soon after that, it no longer becomes I need a car to go to my job. It becomes I need a job so I can have my car, right? And we work at our job so we can keep our car. And so now we're worried about our job so I have income so I can take care of my car, a car that is eventually going to go to somebody else and at the end of its life, it's going to go to the junkyard. So we work at our job and we're worried about our job and our income so we can have this car that is eventually going to be a rust bucket. And Solomon is saying, that is vanity. That is a great evil. So Solomon asks, why work when everything that we work for goes to someone else? And this comes after Solomon has asked the question, why should we be wise since the wise man and the fool experience the same fate? In essence, Solomon is asking the question, why should we do anything if nothing matters, if there's no enduring remembrance? You end up dead and everything that you do will eventually be forgotten, and all that you have gained in this life will eventually go to somebody else. In essence, you will be forgotten, and all the stuff that you work for means that you are working to enrich somebody else. Aren't you really glad that you came to church today? (laughs) Sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? But the good news is, Solomon doesn't stop there. Solomon asks the question, what's the point? But he answers his own question. Because the answer is God. So Solomon asks the question, why? Point number three, why? And the answer is because of God. Look at verse 24. Solomon says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. 
This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Again, back in chapter 1, verse 3, he's asked the question, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What is the meaning of life? And that phrase that Solomon uses, under the sun, is his favorite phrase that he uses to let us know that he's looking only on the horizontal. He is only looking at what this world has to offer. He is only looking at that which exists underneath the sun. Solomon, for so far in the book, has let us know that for a great portion of his life, he has removed God from the picture. And what did he find? He says that it's nothing but vanity. That all the activity in this world with God removed from the picture is like striving after the wind. It's like trying to hold on to smoke. It's pointless and it gets you nothing. And like we said already is that eventually then you die and you are forgotten and all your stuff goes to somebody else. But here, in verse 24, Solomon points us to where we find me. Points us to where we find lasting value. Look at it again. He says in verse 24, that there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat or drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This, here it is, this also I saw is from the hand of God. He tells readers to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their work. Now that seems odd, because just two verses later he said that all your toil is meaningless. Now he's telling you to find enjoyment in your toil. So is Solomon confused? Is he just telling us to eat, drink, and be happy because tomorrow you die? No. And it's because of that last little phrase there in verse 24 when he says, This also I saw is from the hand of God. Solomon is giving us a new perspective. Solomon says a phrase that he has not said at all in this book. Because up until this point, like I said, Solomon has removed God from the picture. But now, Solomon is now not only cropping God back into the picture... But he's looking to God to help him understand the picture. For the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, I can say it, Solomon is using a biblical worldview. Solomon tells us that we are to see things in this world and we are to enjoy things in this world as seeing them from the hand of God. He then goes a step further in verse 25 when he says this, when he says, and apart from him, you can't, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Basically, what Solomon is letting us know that apart from God, we cannot enjoy this life. That we cannot enjoy eating or drinking and we cannot enjoy our work unless God allows us to enjoy it. And this isn't the only time that Solomon says something like this. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. 
He says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them that than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Flip over to chapter 5, verse 18. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. And what these verses are telling us is that God is the one who gives us life, God is the one that gives us the ability to work. God is the one that gives us the ability to be able to gain a living through our work. And God is the one who gives us the ability to enjoy that living that we gain through our work. In short, what we have here is that God gives us the ability to enjoy the lifestyle that we get, that we gain because of the work that he has given us because of the life that he has allowed us to live. And when we go back to chapter 2, verse 24, Solomon is letting us know that this truth trickles down all the way to the basic necessities of our life. To the basic necessities of eating and drinking. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses and God are having that conversation where God wants Moses to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, Moses says, I am slow of speech and of tongue, to which God replies, who made man's mouth? Or in particular, who made man's tongue? And the Sunday school answer is? That was not very convincing. (laughs) Who made man's tongue? That's much better. And the tongue is a very fascinating piece of your body. Here's some facts about the tongue. The average adult tongue is about three inches long. The Guinness Book World Record for the longest tongue is just under four inches. Your tongue is made up of eight different muscles. And it is the only muscle group in your body that operates independently from your skeleton. Every other bone, is, every other muscle you have is connected in some way to a bone, but your tongue is not, which makes it not only interesting that way, but it also makes it the most flexible tongue, or flexible muscle in your body. Your tongue print is as unique as your fingerprint, which means that your tongue can be used for identification verification. So when you go to the bank, instead of putting your thumbprint... Your tongue can provide clues to your overall overall health. It can identify certain diseases and cancers. It can be used to identify sleeping disorders as well as negative reactions to medication. And your tongue has anywhere between 2,000 and 10,000 taste buds. And if you are one of those lucky ones that's in the 10,000 category, you are known as a super taster. And your taste buds last about two weeks. Now, all of that and more 
was intimately created and designed by God. And it is those thousands of taste buds that allow us the ability to taste food, to taste and to enjoy the goodness of what we eat and drink. But not only that, God is also the one that made food taste the way that it does. A few weeks ago, when when I was preaching last, I talked about the good watermelon that we had at summer camp a number of years ago. And how we said that it was God who is good that made that watermelon to be good and to taste so good. And now we find that God who is good made our tongues to be good so that we have the ability to taste that watermelon that is good. And so without God, we could not even enjoy the basic necessities of life like tasting our food. And this is... And this is something that God does, not just for Christians, but for everybody. That God, in his goodness and his grace, allows non-Christians, those people who live in rebellion against him, to be able to taste good watermelon. Which is why he tells us that the ability to eat and drink and find enjoyment in those things comes from the hand of God. And we need to see them that way and thank him for that. In a sense, Solomon here is giving us the Old Testament version of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all what? To the glory of God. And so eating and drinking are to be done to the glory of God. And we eat and we drink to the glory of God when we acknowledge that what we eat and drink and our ability to enjoy what we eat and drink come from God. And Solomon is saying the same thing about our work. That we have to view our work as coming from the hand of God and the enjoyment of our work coming from the hand of God. Now, for those of us who have been around church for a while, we're all, we're all very familiar with the phrase of being called into the ministry, right? That pastors and missionaries and other people in ministry roles have been called to fulfill a certain role. And I think there's some truth in that. But it's my conviction that God has called everybody to do something. That God has created us in a particular way and gifted us in a particular way and places us in particular positions because he has a specific role that he wants us to fulfill. And we're not just talking about your job here. Although your job does include what Solomon is talking about here and this idea of toil. But oftentimes in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is using that word toil to include all of the all of the activities that we do within our life, the things that we do on a day-to-day basis that include our job, but are so much more than just our job. And because we believe in the sovereignty of God, And because Solomon is telling us that our toil comes from God, we can know that whatever our toil is, whatever our work may be, that is the work that comes from the hand of God. Whether it's being a CEO or a janitor or a teacher or a student or a stay-at-home mom, God has given us our toil. God has given us our work. And God allows us to enjoy that work. Because he says in verse 26... 
For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. And here, I don't by any means consider myself a a grammar nerd, but every once in a while, the grammar of the Bible is very fascinating. And here is one of those times where the grammar of the Bible is very fascinating because at the beginning of verse 26, it starts with the word for, which is a conjunction that connects the previous statement with what's going to come after. And the previous statement, Solomon talked about finding joy in our toil, and the next sentence talks about pleasing God, which means that Solomon is making a connection between finding enjoyment in our work And our toil, when we view it as coming from the hand of God. And as a way to please God. So, we're going to apply this to something very mundane. That happens probably on a daily basis. Taking out the trash. Now, when Solomon says that you're supposed to find enjoyment in your toil, he's not saying that you need to throw a party and say, yeah, I get to throw trash away. That's not what he's saying. Because if you throw a party before throwing out the trash, that's kind of weird. (laughs) But what he does mean is that we need to view the fact that we take out the trash, that aspect of work, as coming from the hand of God. And view that aspect of work as a way to please God. So how does that work? How, what does taking out the trash entail? Well, if you live in a house with a whole bunch of other people and it's your job to take out the trash, usually you're not just taking out your own trash. You're taking out trash for everybody else that's in the house. Which means that you taking out the trash means that you are serving somebody else. Which means that you taking out the trash is a way for you to love your neighbor as yourself because you would really like that person to take your trash out. And when we show love to our neighbor, who else are we showing love to? God. Because God tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So taking out the trash is a way to love your neighbor, which is a way to love God, which when you love your neighbor and love God, you are being pleasing to God. But what if you live alone? Well, if you live alone, you taking out your trash is part of you taking care of your possessions. But we know biblically that everything that we own really doesn't belong to us, but it's just God that has given it to us. So in a sense, we're taking care of the things that God has given to us. So you taking out the trash is being a good steward of the stuff that God has given you. And when you take care of the stuff that God has given you and you take care of it well, that pleases God. And so even though we might not enjoy the job itself of taking out the trash, we can find enjoyment in taking out the trash knowing that it is a job that God has given to us and it's a way for us to be living a life that is pleasing to him as we steward the good things that he has given us and as we love our neighbor as ourself. And I'm using that example of taking out the trash because I want us to see how broad this whole subject is. I mean, over the last few weeks, Pastor John has been talking about missions. He's been talking about spreading the gospel around the world. And 
Obviously, that is a work that is definitely pleasing to God. Going out on the mission field, praying for our missionaries, giving money so that missionaries can go and share the gospel with other people around the world. I mean, that is definitely falls in the category of things that are pleasing to God. And all of these things are what we should be doing. I just want us to see that in the same category of things that are pleasing to God are the everyday things that we do, that we have an opportunity in the everyday things that we do, the mundane stuff of our life, can also be stuff that is pleasing to God. So the work that we can do to please God can be something as big as world evangelism and something as small as taking out the trash. And when our work is pleasing to the Lord, that is where we find enjoyment. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your, na- your labor is not in vain. This is a... This is, if any of you know my wife, she's a great person. I love her. And she's really big on three-by-five cards, like putting verses down and truths from the Scripture and posting them around our house, and I love it. And this is one of those passages that's up in our house that reminds her about her labor as a mom in pointing our kids to Christ is not in vain. But that's a very interesting phrase that Paul uses there at the end of that verse, that our labor is not in vain. Where have we seen that word before? In the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And Solomon was concerned that all of, all of his work was vanity and that his pursuit of wisdom was vanity. Why? Because from a worldly perspective, you die and are forgotten and all your stuff goes to somebody else. Paul says that our labor is not in vain. When? When it's done in the Lord. Now, why should that make a difference? Well, look back at Ecclesiastes 2, verse 16, where Solomon says, For the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been forgotten. Solomon is looking for something that has enduring remembrance, something that will not be forgotten. And when we do our work in the Lord, who knows about it? God. God knows about it. Which means that for those of us who are in the Lord and do our work in the Lord, our work has enduring remembrance. Our work is remembered by the person who defines enduring remembrance. Turn with me real quick to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Here we have the Apostle John who's writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And he's writing on behalf of Christ who is 
who wants to send a specific message to each one of these churches. But there are some key phrases that I want us to focus on in these letters. Chapter 2, verse 2. Christ says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Chapter 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, Satan's throne is yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny the faith. Chapter 2, verse 19. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Chapter 3, verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, an open door of ministry. So again and again, Jesus is telling these churches that I know your works. I know your works. I know what you have done for me in my name. Jesus remembers their works. But not only does he remember, he goes on to talk about what he's going to give to those people. To give to them what they will receive. Back in chapter 2, verse 7. He says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Both of those phrases saying that they will be in heaven. Chapter 2, verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except one who receives it. Chapter 2, verse 26, the one who conquers and the one, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Chapter 3, verse 5, the one who conquers, I will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. See, the one who conquers, Jesus is going to make known that person to God and to the, na- and to the angels. Chapter two, chapter three, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. 321, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. So now we have to answer, what, who are these conquerors? Jesus is talking a lot about these conquerors. Who are these conquerors? Well, the apostle John, back in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, says this. He says, for everyone who has been born of God, overcomes the world. And it's the same word. Overcome, conqueror, same word that John is using in Revelation 2 and 3 and here in 1 John 5. 
And this is the victory that has overcome, has conquered the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes? Who is it that conquers the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so John is telling us that the ones who conquer the world are those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And they overcome the world through their faith. And Christ, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, acknowledges that He knows the works of those who conquer. He knows the work of those who overcome. And He's telling us that those who overcome are the ones who have faith in Christ and live faithfully for Christ. And that living faithfully for Christ is seen through our good works. And so Christ remembers the work that we do for Him. There is enduring remembrance. But here's another mind-blowing thought. I mean, we can understand how God would remember our works on into eternity. But what about eternity in the other direction? Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God already knew the good works that you were going to do. God already planned for the good works for you to do them, and He was just waiting for you to finally do them. Good works, like giving to missions or taking out the trash. So, is there any remembrance? Is there any lasting value in what we do? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes when we do our work in the Lord. Because for those of us who are in Christ, God always knew what we would do and God knows what we do and He is going to reward us for what we do. So, what makes wisdom and work meaningful? It's God who makes wisdom. It's God who makes our work meaningful. Because our, when our use of wisdom and the view of our works, when they are done to please God, that is a way to be engaged in the good works that He had planned for us, and that is a way to be engaged in the work that He will remember through eternity. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Will you pray with me? God, you are such a good God. There is so much about your goodness that we do not see, so much about your goodness that we cannot comprehend.
but we do thank you for the glimpses of your goodness that we can see. Father Solomon is letting us know how bleak the world is without you. But he's also letting us know that we can only understand this world and find enjoyment in this world because of you. And so, God, may we be those who first and foremost put our faith and our trust in you for our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. And may we look to you knowing that everything that we receive and everything that we do, even the enjoyment in the things that we do, come from your gracious and good hand. We do praise you, God. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.